0: Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be there. That's going to be our anchoring text for the morning, although we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. And the question that we're going to be answering this morning is, why do humans do what they do? More specifically, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you want the things that you want? What are you wanting when you make the post on social media and put it out there? What are you hoping to gather from that? What are you wanting when you get dressed in the morning and the clothes that you wear? What are you wanting when you buy the, the toys or you buy the stuff or you invest in whatever it is you invest in? What's the hope there? Why do you desire the things that you desire? What are you desiring from your relationships? What are you hoping to gain in your marriage? What do you believe about your your husband or your wife? What do you think that you should get from that? Why are you dating the person you're dating? Why are you pursuing the people you're pursuing? In other words, what gives you value? Our definition to this morning, what we're trying to define is ultimately how do we define our worth? What gives us value? How do we define our worth? And Paul speaks about that here in Romans chapter eight. Starting in verse 13 he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if you but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of Adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so Paul begins this section that we're looking at today with this first statement that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So in order to understand this, we have to, we have to really do some work. We need to go back to the beginning back to Genesis chapter one, and we're gonna look at the fleshly pursuit of worth that leads to death. See, when Paul is speaking about this word flesh here, he's speaking about the carnal man, the part of us that has rejected God that's pursuing our own fleshly desires. We've sinned against God, and we've rejected God in our entire being. Our inner man, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, are fallen and are sinful and are rejecting of God and that comes out in our outer man, our choices, the things that we do. So how can this be? How did this happen? Go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We're going to look at a few things here to help us to understand why is this true. And if you look at Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 28, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, we were created by God for his glory. That's why we were created. We were created by God in his image for his glory. All of man's worth was created and designed for the very purpose of glorifying God. And our worth was defined by the one who gave it. Our worth is attached to and was attached to the one who created the entire universe, God himself. All of man's purpose was to spread the image of God throughout the entire earth. This was man's created worth. This is what you're created for. We didn't have to ask the question in the beginning of what gives us value or where do we find it. It was already defined for us in God himself. And he has given us the purpose, as we see here in Genesis chapter 1, through childbearing, through multiplying, through cultivating the land, through displaying God's communicable attributes through the entire earth, imaging him for his glory. God created man dependent upon him for their value and their purpose. And this was good. This was very good. Yet something happened. Because that's not true of what it is right now, right? So let's go to Genesis chapter three and let's look at what happened. These are not stories that you're unfamiliar with, but I'm hoping to draw your attention to them. In Genesis three, something happens that changes our created worth. Genesis three, verses one through eight. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And hopefully this is helpful. This is kind of a side note within this sermon, but see how Satan operates. What's the first thing that he does? Well, the first thing that he does is questions God. And for the first time in Adam and Eve's life, they doubted the goodness of God. They doubted that God had given them everything that they needed. They thought that something was missing. And the serpent says to the woman, and here's what tempted her. You will be like God. That was it. In that moment, they began to think, is God holding out? Is God hiding something from us? Is there something better? Is there something more? He doesn't want us to be like him. And see, why why did they eat? Well, in verse six, when they saw that the fruit was good and to be desired to make one wise... She took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In that moment, they broke the law of God, which is sin. Sin, by definition, is lawlessness. It's breaking the holy law of God. And in that moment, they chose not to trust God, but to trust themselves. And they believed the lie that Satan was telling them that they could be like God. Now, what was true is they would know the difference between good and evil, but that was not good for them. In that way, they did become like God, and because of that, sin came into the world. And we were separated from God, and death became the reality. See, death, by definition, is separation from God. This perfect union, this harmony we had with God, this worth that we were able to enjoy because of God was now gone, separated. The image of God that was in us was marred, but not fully lost, the union with God was lost. They were now under the judgment of God, deserving the wrath of God. And the worth that they were created with was gone as well. And we see the results of that because what happens as soon as they hear the voice of the Lord, they hid themselves. For the first time in their existence, there was a fear of God, not in a, not in a humble, worshipful way, but in a way of running and hiding. They knew they were naked they tried to sow fig leaves for themselves. They tried to make these coverings that were insufficient. They had lost their worth before a holy God. Romans 5 12 reminds us, therefore, just as sin came into the world, one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 1 through 3 shows us the realities of this. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But I think Paul really lays it out clearly in Romans three, ten through 18. For we have already charged that. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. You see that? Circle that in your Bibles. All have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths and in, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes because of sin worthlessness has entered into man see the foundation of all sin is man's desire to be his own god we just saw that pride, self-worship. But the motivation, I believe, that we see in Scripture is the belief that we can restore the worth that was lost on our own. That you can restore the worth that was lost on your own. But seeking to restore our worth on our own apart from God, the Bible calls that foolishness. That is foolish. And I want to tell you today, church, You feel worthless apart from God because you are worthless apart from God. Instead of fighting that feeling of worthlessness that you feel and trying to fill it with voids of idolatry, you have to have it restored by God himself. It is foolish to pursue idolatry, to put on these insufficient coverings like Adam and Eve did in the garden with fig leaves expecting that that's gonna do anything but lead you to death. Death is at the end of that pursuit. So I wanna look just for a moment. It's not gonna be exhaustive. There's so much in scripture about this, but we're gonna look at certain areas of this idolatry that we tend to pursue. We're gonna look at the fullest pursuit of restoring the worth that was lost. Go to Romans chapter one, verses 21 through 23. Turn there with me. Romans chapter one, verses twenty-one through twenty-three. Paul says this: For although although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Circle that word fools and foolishness. And exchange the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man, the birds and animals and creeping things. Man exchanges the worth given by God for the foolishness of idolatry. This word for fool is asunatos, The definition means without understanding. That's what the Greek word means here. Its usage or its connotation is to be unintelligent, without wisdom, unwise, undiscerning, implying a probable moral defect. This is how God, through his word, through the apostle Paul, describes it. Foolishness. Idolatry is self-worship that produces death. The scripture characterizes the fleshly pursuit of worth through idolatry as foolish. Now I want to give a couple categories because I understand that sometimes we pursue these things and it doesn't feel like wickedness. It may even feel noble. For some of us, we have experienced suffering at the hands of another to be sinned against and respond to that in sin. I call this the shadows of the past. For some of us, we're trying to regain the worth that we feel like was taken from us from someone else. And I know that doesn't feel like wickedness. That doesn't feel like foolishness. But that same pursuit still leads to death. And I want us to see that today. If you're responding to shame, if you're responding to the voices of the past that you're trying to trying to prove to yourself or prove to them, whoever they are, that's only going to lead you to death. It's not gonna produce the hope that you are hoping to fulfill. And so I wanna look at how God in Scripture looks at all these different pursuits of idolatry. Let's start with the idol of wealth. Go to Matthew 6, 19 through 24. We're gonna be in a lot of Scriptures today. I won't make you turn to all of them. But we we have to see as Scripture shows us. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 And Jesus is talking about this earthly pursuit of treasures. And look at what he says. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Doesn't that give that connotation of foolishness? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why would you pursue money for your worth? What are you trying to prove to yourself and to others? Do you not know that all this stuff will rust, will wither? I often say you never see a U-Haul at the gravesite. You're not taking any of it with you. What are you trying to pursue? It is foolishness. And it separates you from God. And one day you'll be, you'll be separated from your possessions. And if that is your God you'll be in a place called hell, death. And none of it will go with you. What about the idol of control? Let's look at Matthew 6, 25 through 27, not, not too much further away. Just look down in your Bibles. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Do you see the foolishness in that statement? What are you trying to control? What are you worrying about? As if you have any control over the next moments of your life. It's foolishness. And do you not know you're more of more value than these? Going back to that question in the garden, do you not trust God? Do you not know where your value would come from? Yet you're gonna worry about these trivial things of life as if you have any control over it? That's foolishness. It leads to death. You experience the death of that worry in the here and now, but once again, it's gonna lead to a life separated from God. And ultimately, if Christ hasn't renewed your heart in a place called hell. There is no worth there. It is foolishness. Let's look at the idol of approval. Matthew 10:26 through32. Matthew 10:26 through32. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark Say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs in your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny it before my Father who is in heaven. Why do you seek the praise of men? It is foolishness. Why do you fear men who have no bearing on your soul? It is foolishness, and it'll lead to death. Why don't you fear God and desire the approval of the one who created you? the one who really matters. Stop looking for it from all the places around you and look for it in the place that it matters from God himself. If you look for it from the place of men, it is foolishness and it leads to death. Put away the voices of the past. Why does it matter what you're trying to prove to yourself or to someone else? God has proclaimed who you are. Why don't you care about that more than what other people think? It's foolishness, and it leads to death. Let's look at the idol of comfort. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Give you a second to get there. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Why do you live for the pleasures of this life, church? Why do you seek self-satisfaction? Do you not know that that is foolishness and will lead to death? I get tired of hearing the excuses of I'm so busy. It's not true. Because from those same mouths, they wanna talk about the game or they wanna talk about the movie they watch. They wanna talk about the show they're into. They wanna talk about the book that they're reading or they wanna talk about, obviously you have time. What are you using it for? Is it not for the kingdom of God? What are you living for? Self satisfaction? And, church, I want you to hear my heart. I'm pleading for you because I don't want you to experience the pains of death. But that's what it's causing. Let's look at the idol of coveting. Let's go to Exodus 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. This is in the Ten Commandments, the last one. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Why do you compare yourselves to others? Why do you want what they want or have? Why do you believe you deserve the things the world offers? Why is what God has given you not good enough? Why do you lust after someone else's wife or husband or someone else's situation? And you may say, oh, I don't do that. Do you look at pornography? Because you are. That's someone's daughter. That's someone's future wife or that, that's someone's husband or someone's future if you think about these things in these ways, do not fool yourself. It is foolishness to compare yourselves to the things of this world or to desire what someone else has, someone else has as if what God has given you is not what He has given you, as if it is not good enough. I got to keep moving. Last one look at the idol of self righteousness. And by the way, these are not all the idols. I'm just giving us a framework to think through. Look at the idol of self righteousness. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. If you want to do further study on things of this nature, just go look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Go study what God says, what Jesus Himself says. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Some who are even sitting in our congregation today, you are here utterly fools, thinking that your religious efforts are bringing you some sort of hope. That your church attendance, that your giving, that checking the boxes are somehow going to make God happy. I want to warn you, as Christ warns in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Your religion, your efforts, religious efforts on their own will not save you. And it is foolish to think otherwise. If your heart is not for the Lord and you do not desire to do the will of the Father, Jesus says, those who love me obey my commands. What do you do in secret when no one sees? Who are you when you're not here? That's the question. And I want to warn you with that because to me that's the scariest scripture in all of scripture. I want to make sure that my heart is true, and I hope that you do as well. And I just want to give you the list of how the fleshly pursuit is personified in in Scripture. If you go to Galatians chapter five with me, Galatians chapter five, it's right before Ephesians. Ephesians. Start in verse 19. This is just one of the lists of the fleshly pursuits. Now, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, the fleshly pursuit of worth always produces death. The fleshly pursuit begins in the heart and is displayed in our actions. Our created worth is lost because of sin. But God redeems us through his son, Jesus Christ, and he restores the worth that we were created for. There is hope. And I want to spend the rest of our time looking at that hope (laughs) in case you feel a little beat up right now. Go back to Romans 8. Don't worry, we're moving. I know some of you are thinking we've only done a half of a verse. But we're going to keep going. Go back to verse 13, the second half. It says, For if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, the redeemed worth comes through death. The redeemed worth comes through death. If you guys are on the screens, we're on point number two. The redeemed worth comes through death. Look at the beginning of chapter eight. I wanna show you what Paul has said leading up to this point, and I wanna look at what this requires. So how do we receive this spirit? Well, those who receive the spirit of God comes through trusting in Christ, which requires death. First, it requires Christ's death. In order for us to possess the Holy Spirit of God, first, Christ had to die. 1 Peter three eighteen. for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians five fourteen. Through 17 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. See, Christ had to be the propitiation for our sin. He had to satisfy the wrath of God, and he does that through living a perfect, sinless life, being holy God and holy man, dies, being the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and was raised again on the third day, resurrected, proving himself as God, as the Son of God. And because of that, for those who believe in Christ will be saved, will be justified by his blood, will be covered by his blood. But how do we believe? Well, that requires death also. That requires us dying to ourselves. That requires us, in faith, trusting Christ alone for our salvation and taking up our cross and following him. It requires us making him Lord, you cannot be saved without Christ being your Lord, which means you are no longer yours. You are now a slave to Christ. Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul is speaking. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Luke 9:23. Jesus says, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. The cross is the image of death. You must die every day, taking up your cross to follow Christ, not to follow your own desires, passions, but to follow Christ. Galatians five, twenty-four, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You cannot be saved without dying. You cannot be saved without putting off the fleshly desires. And your worth will never be restored until you die to yourself. Have you surrendered your life to Christ as Lord? Have you died to yourself so that you may live in Christ? How can you be sure? That's the other question. I think I have. I want that to be true. How do I know if that's true? Well, point number three is the Spirit is the evidence of our redeemed worth in salvation and the power for sanctification. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the evidence of our redeemed worth in salvation and the power for sanctification. We see that again, we go back to verse 13, leading through 14. But if I but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit is the evidence of the fight against the flesh. Do you fight this every day through repentance and faith? Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 reminds us that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. See, the two go hand in hand. You cannot say, I'm in Christ without seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's impossible. You cannot separate the two. And God has given us the resource to battle and put to death the flesh, God Himself, through the Holy Spirit within us. It's a dependent work upon the Holy Spirit, but we must constantly battle and respond to it while we're transformed into the image of Christ. But that's how you can know. That's how you're sure is that the Holy Spirit is within you and the fruit of the Spirit is growing in you. And the Spirit is the assurance of our redeemed worth. You can have assurance, but you have to do it on God's terms. And the Bible has given us clarity on what that means. You don't have to pursue a false worth. You're given a new worth that we're gonna talk about more in depth as we go. But you don't have to wonder You just have to ask yourself some real questions. Do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Galatians 5, 22 through 26, we were there just a minute ago when we saw the works of the flesh. Or right after that, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, defined by Christ, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. If you're a professing believer and you're continually living in sin and, and you do not show a desire to grow, and the fruits of the Spirit are not growing in you, your claims of Christ are in vain. If there's no repentance, if there's no forgiveness, if there's no worship, if there's an anemic prayer life, only calling out when you want something, if there's no desire to share the gospel, if there's no fellowship with other believers, I want you to heed the warning to Matthew seven twenty-one through 23 we read a few minutes ago. However, if the fruit of the Spirit is in you and you do see it grow in you and you do have these desires, you have the joy of knowing that you're a child of God. That's very hopeful for us. That's assurance for salvation. And this comes with an inheritance. This brings us to our next point, the inheritance of our redeemed worth. The inheritance of our redeemed worth. What is that worth that God gives us? Well, let's look at verses 15 through 16. After he says, if you're led by the spirit of God, you're sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, "Abba, Father." The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does this mean? We're sons of God that we get to cry out as Abba, Father. Well, he starts out with that juxtaposition between a spirit of fear versus a spirit of adoption. Notice that that spirit is lowercase, speaking about your own fleshly desires. Those who are not in Christ have the fear of death, and they should. They have fear of the the separation from God and a constant clamoring for the worth that was lost. The fear of death for the lost is a right fear because the wrath of God does remain on them. But if you're in Christ, you should no longer fear. You no longer have that fear. You have the spirit of adoption. And for us to understand the the full weightiness of that response and what Paul is saying here, I I wanna lay out What adoption meant at the time, what was in Paul's mind when he uses that word adoption because he uses it very specifically and to have its full effect. What is the spirit of adoption? Well, to understand this, we have to understand the context of adoption in Roman society. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, he must have had this in the back of his mind when he was writing scripture. And of course, we know know that was of the Holy Spirit, right? So, according to Roman law, An adopted child, especially an adopted son, sometimes had greater greater privilege and prestige than natural children. So you actually had greater prestige or privilege than natural children. According to Roman law, a father's rule over his children was absolute. If he was disappointed in his natural son's skill, character, or any other attribute, he would search diligently for a boy available for adoption who demonstrated the qualities he desired. And if the boy proved himself worthy, the father would take the necessary legal steps for adoption. At death, the adopted son would inherit the father's title and the major part of his estate. The process of adoption was very involved. It involved several carefully prescribed legal procedures. The first step totally severed the boy's legal and social relationship to his natural family. The second step placed him permanently into his new family, In addition, all of his previous debts and other obligations were eradicated as if they never existed. What does that sound like to you? Paul had this idea in mind when he was communicating the amazing grace of the gospel and all that we have been given. For those who are saved by God, here's what what this means. You're cleansed from your sin because of the blood of Christ. Your debts are no longer held against you. You're saved from the penalty of sin by becoming, or or He saved you from the penalty of sin, Christ, by becoming the propitiation, satisfying God's wrath. You no longer have to fear death or God's wrath or the punishment of a place called hell. He's given you a new heart in Christ. He doesn't even require you to do it on your own. He gives you a new heart in the Spirit of God so that you can respond and choose Christ. You're justified. He's renewing us through sanctification, making us more into the image of Christ. And we will ultimately be glorified with him forever. What an amazing truth about who we are in Christ. Look at how Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 lays it out. I love this passage. I call it the identity passage because you wanna see what it means to be in Christ, what your worth is according to Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is who we are in Christ. Does that excite you? Does that grow your affections for the Lord? If it doesn't, then you should question that. But why would you pursue secondary, meaningless things within this world when that is who you're called to be? When this is the truth of who you are? This should give us the awareness, the awareness all of us who are in Christ, of this wonderful reality of your worth being restored in Christ. That worth that was lost in the beginning is fully restored. Fully. Not lacking. And you're given the privilege to call him Abba Father. That word Abba denotes a familial uh, attitude. Essentially it's calling him dad or daddy or papa. This expresses intimacy, tenderness, dependence, freedom from worry or fear. You are cared for by a loving father who you will never be separated from again. Church. Many of us still sit at the gate offering our filthy rags to God, hoping that's enough. When he has offered you a seat at the table, put on your robe and sit down at the table. You don't deserve to be there. That's why it's grace. But that's who you are in Christ. Sit at the table. You've been given a seat at the table. This should create humility in you. This should create worship in you. This should create in you the understanding that you don't deserve it. That's the beauty of it. It's about his glory, not yours. You were not created for your own glory. You should feel less than. And he's offered you this grace to say you are equal. You have an equal seat at the table that I have given you, that I have chosen you for, that I have made the way for. So sit down. Stop looking for other places to fulfill that void that you've lost. Those other places only produce death. Humbly go before the Lord and sit at the table where you have life. Life abundantly. He has given us so much. I wanna look at the implications that come with our redeemed worth. Let's look further in in chapter seven or verse seventeen. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs. Oh the futility of human inheritance. How often do you spend worrying, trying to build some sort of inheritance? for yourself and for your children. Oh, the futility and foolishness of that. We are heirs with Christ. Our spiritual inheritance is limitless. We receive a full inheritance. Look what he says. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ receives by divine right We all receive because of God's amazing grace. You receive all of it. Do you understand? Why would you ever trade in the unmatchless worth of God for the filthy rags of this world? What a fool. And all of us are fools. All of us are fools. In Christ, we have God's approval. Why would you ever look to someone else's approval? In, in Christ, we can trust in God's sovereign control over our lives. Why would you keep trying to grab it for yourself? In Christ, we can be content with what our Father has given us, knowing that it is, it is from God and for his glory. Why would you want what someone else has? You don't know what God's trying to do in your life. We are free to work hard to bring him glory. Why would you wallow in your laziness and self-satisfaction? That'll never produce the satisfaction you're looking for. But yet work heartily for the Lord. Knowing that he's the one who strengthens us and he's the one that brings the peace. We are free to steward all that we have because it is God's for his glory. Why are you hoarding your treasures to yourself? Instead, why don't you think about how can I build the kingdom of God through what he has given me? That is so much more fruitful. And this should produce in you humility, a humble worship of a holy God. And that brings the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You want those things? That's only found in Him. But there is a requirement. There's a requirement that Paul lays out here. Don't miss it. There's a requirement of this redeemed worth. The second part of verse 17 provided we suffer. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering is the requirement. It's the expectation. You're not promised a blessed life now. You're told to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. That has the connotation that every day will be suffering. How does that suffering play out? Well, it first starts with denying yourself, cutting away the flesh, repenting, not indulging. Take up your cross. This fleshly pursuit is still the fight of the believer. You've been given the ability to choose Christ now because of a new heart. But don't get it twisted. You need to battle the flesh every day, you need to put it to death every day. Every day. The proof of a believer's ultimate glory is suffering for the name of Christ. Are you willing to give up the world? And don't just shake your head yes to me. It doesn't matter what you tell me. God knows your heart. I'm just asking the questions. Are you willing to give up the world? Are you willing to deny your flesh? Are you willing to live for God and all that that takes? Are Are you willing to proclaim the name of Christ at all times in every situation? all of which brings forth mockery, ridicule, and sometimes physical persecution. Do you desire that? I want to end our time with the same questions we started with. Why do you do the things that you do? Are you seeking worth from the world? My encouragement to you is repent. Repent. If you're in Christ, repent. If you're not in Christ, repent for the first time because the fleshly pursuit of worth only brings forth death. Where do you find your worth? How do you define your value? If you're in Christ, put on the robe and sit at the table. Stop defining it by worldly means. You know why you're anxious? You know why you're depressed? It's because of your sin. Are you a child of God? And if not, I implore you to repent today that you may become a child of God and be able to call him Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and as much as this talk is for anyone in here, it's for me as well. God, there is a battle with our flesh every day, a battle you understand. And we come before you. You know our struggles. But for all those who are in this room who are your children, God, give them the conviction and the courage to repent and to trust you. To enjoy the worth that you have given us. Help us to sit at the table. Help us to be motivated by the grace that you have given us. For those that are in this room who are darkened in their understanding who this is futility to their own minds, God, I pray you'd open their heart and save them. That they would go from death to life. And that they would put their faith in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.